Uh, we're going to continue our lesson and our studies through 1 Corinthians. The last time I spoke, we covered the first 17 verses of chapter 1. Now we're going to begin at verse 18, but I want to just remind you, Paul is writing to a divided group. He's writing to a group who had become prideful and puffed up in their view of themselves and they became self-serving. And now what they're doing is they're pitting these men who are servants and they're making a competition between the preachers. And the, what they're doing is, is they're lifting one above the other. And so if you were Paul and you were going to try to attack that problem, how would you do it? But the way the Apostle Paul does it by the Holy Spirit is like this. He's, he's wanting to show them the whole message of the gospel. It's not about all that. So he begins this way in talking about that. In verse 18 he says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved... It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of, the, of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world, to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. What's so amazing is that the very nature and foundation of this message of the cross, the fact that God's Son, who is deity, He's God in the flesh, He became flesh, walked among us, He stooped 
He lowered himself. And then he allowed his own creation to mock him, to ridicule him, to crucify him. And thereby, by his own will, he sacrificed himself for our sins because we needed salvation. He wanted us to be right with him. Now imagine these very people that he came to do that for, now that they're saved by his blood, they start growing and thinking, my own righteousness has saved me. Or think, my own ability is something to be bragged about or promoted. Or for a preacher to preach that gospel and make it about himself. How disgusting is that, really? To think it's about me or about whoever's doing the speaking. Or for you who have been washed in his blood to then think that preaching is about whoever is speaking and his speaking ability or about his accomplishments or about all of those accolades, his pedigree, where he went to school his talents, his abilities, and want to try to make a competition between these men? That's really the, the, the opposite of the whole message of the gospel. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So when he says, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Think about this. Now he's not talking about foolish preaching <laughs> he's talking about the foolishness of preaching why is just think why did God choose preaching and this message of the cross to save us what why is this why is this uh, so hard why does it trip people up think about it God died isn't that, isn't that kind of hard to wrap your head around? I mean, I think that's why the Greeks had a difficulty with this. God was man, God and man at the same time. That's kind of hard to deal with, but then he died. How does God die? I thought he was an eternal being. So it, it seems hard to grasp to some people. But it's true. And yet, also think about this. Men killed him. Wait, I thought God was all-powerful. I thought God who made the world. How is it that men killed him? You see how, that, how that's a difficulty? It seems foolish to the Greeks. Or, what about this? He was innocent. And he died for the guilty. That, that seems unjust. The, the only man who's ever lived on this earth as innocent, fully innocent, no sin, died for all of the sinful and the worst ones. 
That's kind of hard to, to see that. But it was a part of satisfying the justice of God, but yet that is an act of injustice itself. So it seems contradictory to some. And add to that, it was God's Son who He gave. It's hard to, hard to wrap our heads around that. God gave His Son for His creation. Well, wait a minute. He made His creation, and then He gave His Son for the creation. Those are some difficult concepts, but they're the foundational principles to understand and believe and trust as a part of this message of the cross. And then you think about the Jews. Why is this hard for the Jews to accept? Well, Galatians 3.13, Paul makes reference that cursed is he who hangs on a tree. And that's a quote from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. The Old Testament law said they were not to allow someone to hang on that tree too long. And cursed is he who hangs on a tree. What happened to Jesus? How was he crucified? He was crucified on a cross made out of wood. How does this happen? The, the sinless Son of God became a curse for us to release the curse that we were under, that we were guilty of sin. So these are stumbling blocks for Jews and Greeks. And I want you to see, though, that one thing about this, this is part of God's wisdom here, is that His message is contrary to the Jewish culture and to the Greek culture. So we need to remember this. And you remember even whenever, and I've talked about this from Acts chapter 18, when the church at Corinth got started. If you recall, there were some leaders of the Jews who had to repent and come out of that in order to see the, the new covenant and now adopt it. Because... And, and why did the Jews persecute these Christians? Because it seemed contradictory to the way that they thought. Now, I don't believe the New Covenant is contradictory to the Old Covenant because the Old Covenant prophesied of the New. But I'm saying among the Jewish culture, it seemed contradictory. Here's another thing. The Jews want a sign. Okay? Well, what you remember when, when they were talking to Jesus? They said, show us a sign. There are people like that today. They, Give us some message. How do I know that God is real? How do I know that Jesus is the Son of God? Just give me some miracle, some obvious thing that would show me beyond any reasonable doubt God is who he claims to be, that Jesus is who he claims to be, and I'll believe. That's what they were telling Jesus. Give me this sign. He said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. The only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was in the, in the fish's belly, three days, three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. That's the sign I'm going to give you. 
Well, they wanted, maybe they wanted some other sign. Maybe kind of like, uh, remember, Naaman, who wanted to be cleansed of his leprosy. And, and then Elisha gives him a very simple command. Go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times, and you'll be cleansed of your leprosy. And he's like, I, that don't make any sense. I, I was expecting something more. I thought he was going to come out, and the way he's going to strike his hand over this place. and They were looking for a show. And even today, even in, and even in the Corinthians, what they were looking for, these Jewish Corinthians wanted a sign. And the Greek Corinthians, they want somebody they can look to to say, see how intelligent this person is, see how great they can speak, see their accomplishments. You've got to remember, the Corinthians really put a lot of... Uh, uh, emphasis on these kinds of outward things they had the isthmus games so they had very talented performers athletic people but then they had the theater that could hold like 15,000 spectators so they had the performing arts they also had these philosophers who were known people would go to them to listen to them they wanted somebody they can hear their knowledge and, and look up to them and so all of that has now bled over into these Christians who are thinking the same way. Do you want a preacher who speaks really well? You want a speaker, you want a preacher who knows a lot, that everybody looks up to, maybe looks good. Sorry about that. You want somebody that you can look to for all of these outward reasons. And then so you can say, what? He baptized me. What does that even mean for you? Or to say, I follow this guy and this is the one that baptized me. That's what they were doing. That's why Paul said, I'm glad I didn't baptize any more of you because that would make the preaching of the cross of no effect. Think about this. The apostle Paul had a lot of those kinds of things in his past in the Jewish religion. He had the pedigree. He had the, the bragging rights among the Jews to be able to say, I was raised at the feet of Gamaliel. I was of this tribe. I was brought up. I was taught this. I had a reputation. I had all these things going for me. But you know, in all of that, he was confused. He thought Jesus was a blasphemer at first. And he caused people who followed them to blaspheme. And he did so much damage unwittingly. But yet, the whole very fact that Paul could be forgiven, even the very guy who was putting Christians in prison, if he could be forgiven, and now he's one of the greatest servants in the faith that he wants it destroyed, it doesn't say, okay, it's all about a person's outward achievements. It's all about their talents and abilities. If you get anything from Paul's conversion, it's the opposite there. And what Paul is saying is that what this shows is if I, as the chief of sinners, can be saved, anybody can be saved. And it's not about us. So don't you be going around saying you're baptized by me. I wasn't crucified for you. It wasn't my blood that saves you. 
And so that's what Paul is now saying. Where you need to put man's wisdom in relation to God's wisdom, those things don't even compare. So why do, even today, why do we get caught up in this? Worrying about if a preacher's, has he been to FC? Is a preacher, was he, was he schooled by this preacher? Does he have this name? Is he of this family? What, what does all that matter? God doesn't call us by that. He calls us to come into his family regardless of our past. We can be forgiven and then whenever we're forgiven, we're not to be bragging. We're not to be serving ourselves and boasting about ourselves. And we certainly don't need to allow the brethren to do that to us. It'd be so tempting, wouldn't it, for some people to, to like the flattering titles, to be built up by men. And Paul, Paul would have none of that. Think about the message of the cross. He says the whole idea of it. The foolishness of preaching. I mean, think, think, you ever wonder why too? He, he talks about how God uses little things, foolish things, to confound the wise. Here's what's interesting. Where were the wise people when Jesus came? Who knew the Scriptures? Who had the Scriptures? Who were, who were known as doctors of the law? Those who were in the know, what was Jesus constantly saying to them? Have you not read? Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. The very people who thought they knew God's will, who people looked up to, they called them rabbi. They called them teacher, master. They looked up to them. And these were the ones who yelled, crucify him. They didn't know it. Later, Paul's going to say, if they had have known it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So the ones who were supposed to be in the know didn't know. What does that tell you? Why do, why do I want to put my trust in another man's knowledge and be so in awe and enamored? Oh, the, everybody else is looking up to this guy. Look at all these degrees this guy's got. Like he's some superhuman. He's just a man. He needs salvation. Why does God choose little things? Why does God choose little people to do big things? Think about this. God has chosen the base things of the world to confound. I mean, just think about this. You go back to Deuteronomy for a moment. Just think about the whole history of God's people. I mean, when God made them a people, he took Abraham, simply a man who came out of Ur, and because he believed in God, God promised to him to make him a great nation. And then sometime later, you have Joseph who was the youngest in the family, or, you know, then later Benjamin. But he, he's, he's the younger brother that they hate, but God chose to use that younger brother that they hated 
to save them in order to preserve them, to make them a great nation, to keep his promise to Abraham. Then you find Moses, who was raised as an Egyptian, even though he was a Hebrew, and he was on the backside of the desert shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. God chose him to be the deliverer of his people. Why? Why, why choose him? And he was a m more meek than any man on the face of the earth. Why didn't he choose somebody else that, that they would have picked? God doesn't do it. He doesn't work that way. But then look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 and, and look at what Moses reminds them of about how God chose them. Deuteronomy 7. Go back to verse 1. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Well, what about all these people? Who are they? They knew, it's, look what it says, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. You remember? They were bigger. They had cities that were walled up to heaven. They were, they were larger, bigger. They were afraid of them. Why did God choose the little nation? To defeat seven bigger nations. To make the little nation swell up in pride and feel like it's because of their achievement? <laughs> Absolutely not. What's to show the power was in God? All right. Drop down to verse 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's why God chose you. It was because of his love, not because of your number and your greatness. So when you go into this land and God gives you this land, don't forget that. Don't forget that God has made you what you are. Not you yourself. So remember that. Now we come along and we're, we're preaching and you're wanting to put men above another and make it about this kind of a competition. We're not supposed to be bragging before God. Let I me mean, think about this. We're us bragging before God? That that's just so messed up. God who is so much greater than us. And we're bragging? We're having a this talent show? Is that what we're making it into? In Judges chapter seven, that whole exercise. God takes Gideon and he's going to defeat this huge multitude of people. That whole exercise, tell everybody that's afraid, go home. Okay, you can say, well, that's trying to teach them to trust him. Okay. But then God says, the number's still too many. You know, like 10,000 or something like that went home. Or whittled down to that, I forget exactly which. But then after that, God wants to whittle down the number even further. So he says, take them down to the river. And do this little test, whoever laps or whoever brings the water to their mouth will determine. Well, 
most of them are sent home, so now you only have 300. Why have 300 against the multitude? So the 300 could brag? No. And so Judges 7 verse 2 is so that you don't say, by my might I saved myself. That was the whole point of that exercise. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, even to us, we need to remember that when we're saved, we in the past were not a people. That's what Peter says. But God has saved us and made us a people. And the whole point, why does God choose little things to do big things? Why did God choose the youngest brother of Jesse's, of Jesse's children, to defeat Goliath and then become the leader? Why? Is it that to show that God takes little things and does big things with them? Why does God use locusts to do a lot of damage? Ants to do a lot of work. You ever wonder about things? The way God made things. Is that not to show God can take little things? He can take the little person to do big things. He can take... Why did, when Jesus came to choose his disciples, how would you have chosen your disciples if, 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 if you were him? Would you have went around asking, doing a, uh, you know, interviews and trying to see who had the most talent and who, who everybody else looked up to? Is that the way you would have done it? But what did Jesus do? He chose fishermen. And he chose a tax collector. And he chose a zealot. He chose common people. And what did the people say whenever they saw these men? They're ignorant and unlearned men. But they took knowledge that he'd been with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Why did, and now you guys are wanting to take these men and make it about a competition between them? You remember Jesus had discussions with his disciples who had leanings towards these ideas. Remember how that the sons of thunder... The sons of Zebedee, the, the mom wanted them, one set on the right hand, one on the left. Jesus said, no, it's not like that. You don't even know what you're asking. And then whenever there was a squabble, who's going to be the greatest? He said, that's the way it is among the Gentiles, but in the Lord's kingdom it's not like that. The greatest among you be your servant. You ever wondered, even just this message of the cross, when Jesus came to the earth, why didn't he choose the richest family, the most well-known family, why didn't he choose the one that everybody else would have picked? You want to know why? Because that's not the way he works. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a little small town, Micah 5. You know, it talks about how this little... You know what? You're not the least among the cities of Judah. And the reason why he says that is because you're going to have the lawgiver. They would have known that as one of the least, smallest cities. God took this small city, and that's where he chose to... Why? For these very reasons. Why was he born in a poor family? Why was Jesus growing up in Nazareth? And others like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why these things? Because the way people think they... They either look up or look down on people based upon these silly reasons. But we in the kingdom of God ought to know better. No flesh should glory in his presence. That's the whole point, verse 20, 29. 
And you know he quotes from Isaiah 29. Go back to Isaiah uh, very quickly. Isaiah 29, verse 14. He says, Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work, a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. So Paul's quoting this. You know, this is in the same context, back to verse 13, that Jesus quoted that they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And it's the same context in verse 16 that Paul quotes, why do the thing formed say to the, thing, the one who formed it, why have you made me thus? But sandwiched in there between that, verse 14, God can take the wisdom of men and make them look so confused. Why does he do that? So that we would say, I don't have any reason to brag. I don't have any reason to boast before God. And then, verse 31, so that whoever glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's the main point that he's driving home. And he's quoting this from Jeremiah 9. Very quickly, look at that. Look at Jeremiah 9. In verse 23, you got a group of people who care about who knows what, who they look up to, who has what in their possession. No, why do people do that? Think somebody's somebody because of how much they own. How silly. That doesn't determine your character. But verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this. You want something to brag about? You want something to boast about? Here it is. That he understandeth and knoweth me. That I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. The only thing that really matters, do I know God? That, if a person knows calculus, but they don't know God. If a person is a rocket scientist, but they don't know God. What do they know? If, they're, if they know as much as Socrates, and they're looked at as a great philosopher, but they don't know God. That's the beginning of knowledge. That's the important thing. And why is it that children sometimes can understand the most simplest and foundational things in Scripture, and yet these so-called wise people can't even comprehend it, and they get tripped up over it? Why is that? Is that not also a part of God's wisdom? When he talks about the foolishness of God, as if there is such a thing... God's not foolish. God's wise. But if there's such a thing called the foolishness of God, it's a whole lot wiser than men. We need to realize He knows what's best. We don't need to make this about us. We need to be thankful. And so, there's the answer to division. It's for us to realize where we came from. Remember our roots. We're saved by the blood of Christ. And when we're saved by the blood of Christ, we have no bragging rights. When we've done all that we're supposed to do, what are we supposed to say? I'm an unprofitable servant. I've done that which was my duty to do.
In Titus 3, he says, We're not saved by our works or works of our righteousness. Listen, if you haven't been washed in the blood, it's his blood that's going to save you. It's not by your great deeds. It's not by your own works of righteousness. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, and you believe this message of the cross. You can be saved. No matter what you have done, you can be forgiven. If you believe with all your heart, you repent, you confess, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and then you're baptized, and then you live faithfully, you can have a crown of life. It's a beautiful message. And then as you grow as a Christian, don't start swelling up with self-righteousness. It's not you that saved yourself. You're going to continue to serve Him because of what He's done for you. And we don't need to be fighting among each other and dividing among each other about this competition stuff. That's silly. We all can make it to heaven. And we all can have an equal inheritance. We all need Him just as much. If you're a Christian, remember that. If you've forgotten any of that, we're here to help you. Whatever your need is, come while we stand and as we sing.